Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. Welcome back. This is the Gospel Feast series for those who want a little meat after their milk. It's time to feast on the Word. And I'm here with author and scholar Reed Simonson. Uh, his work on the Old Testament studies has been very insightful for me. We are continuing our discussion on the book of Daniel. Now previously, we had discussed that Sir Isaac Newton had mentioned that all of Christianity rises or falls on the truthfulness of the book of Daniel. We then discussed Daniel the man, uh, the difficulties Daniel had growing up in Babylon, and then we discussed his chief antagonist, so to speak, King Nebuchadnezzar, and the man that apparently ruled with such authority that no one, there's never been a king or ruler like him. So in our previous episode, we talked about the great idol Nebuchadnezzar had set up for himself and commanded all to worship it. Obviously, this is something Daniel would never do, and we know from the scriptures that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also had no desire to worship this idol. So, Reed, can we pick up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Oh, let's do it. It's such an incredible story. 
In fact, let's back up just a beat and start here. In fact, let me read a little bit from the book Daniel in the Last Days. At the completion of his narcissistic monument to himself, Nebuchadnezzar invited everyone of any importance to its unveiling. He also had some sort of musical theme written, which included harmonies of the trumpet, flute, harp, eastern trombone, and dulcimer. When this theme song was played, all the people of the world were to fall down on their face with their butts up in the air and worship the statue. It was also made clear that anyone who refused to do this would be burnt alive in a fiery furnace, not unlike the medieval depictions of hell. We do know exactly where Daniel was at this time, and we said that before. But we also know exactly where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. They, sadly, were there. Yes. When the King's How Great I Art theme song was played, these three refused to stick their butts up in the air and worship the idol. Nebuchadnezzar's affection for these three young men can be seen in his first summoning them to answer for their refusal and then giving them a second chance to comply. Of the many trials and wonders contained in Daniel's book, I believe that there are no greater lessons than the one recorded here. Modern men and women would do well to ponder on this event. Let's read a little bit of it. Daniel 3.14 Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do ye not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready, that at the time when ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, slack butt, isn't that great, and dulcimer, yeah, it's actually all the trumpets that we already mentioned before in a less King James way, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, but if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you in this manner. Woo! Everyone is careful to answer Nebuchadnezzar in every manner. They said, we're going to tell you something really blunt. If it so be our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, this is the part that's astounding to me. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Oh my gosh, to be so brave. Yeah, even even wild, untamable beasts obeyed Nebuchadnezzar. Well, and these three men had no intention to do so. They didn't. And what the part that really blows my mind is the, but if not, just ponder on this a minute. These young men told the king that they were not willing to be careful in answering his demands. They were going to speak bluntly, a very dangerous thing to do. They would not worship a false god, no matter the most powerful tyrant on earth, no matter what he said to them. They knew that their god could save them from the power of Nebuchadnezzar. But this is the part that really astounds me. They had complete faith that God could save them. But. Even if he didn't. Wow. They still would worship the true God. Wow. Wow. But if their God chose to let them burn alive, they would not dishonor him by breaking the first commandment to Moses. They refused to put any God before him, even if he refused to save them. I mean, it's just, wow. How few men can claim this? Here, I believe, is the lesson for us, to be honest. It is easy to follow a God who pours blessings on your head, makes you rich, sees things your way, and generally makes life go merrily, merrily, merrily down the stream. How many modern Christian churches make worship easy these days? You know, that's a very interesting point. Uh, I myself have attended multiple different denominations, and many of them have lovely and wonderful services. But I would, I would characterize many by 
feel-good ceremonies. Well, yeah. And to to touch on something as, as traumatic as what these three men came upon, that trial of faith is rarely seen. And what kind of astounds me anymore is like, you know, if it's a nuisance to come to church meetings on Sunday morning. Okay, let's say, for example, you know, your kids are in soccer practice or peewee football on Sunday. Okay, fine. Well, a lot of the churches have worship schedules that can fit your modern lifestyle. Uh, come on Wednesday night instead of Sunday, or you can actually now buy the DVD sermon and watch it at home in your jacuzzi, in your Speedo, if you don't want to come to church. Just to make sure that, you know, as long as you send in your weekly donations, they'll send the sermons to you. And if you find the sermons are boring, well, now we have Come Rockin' with Jesus Thursdays. And you can sing and sing and sing to music of the trumpet, the flute, the harp, the dulcimer. You know, uh, even the pastor plays the drums and the wife plays a tambourine. Not to make fun of those things, but I find it really interesting. So, okay, but now back to these three men. So that's if worship is easy. But what if worship isn't easy? Despite modern man's sensibilities, are there any stories in the Bible about God so desperately wanting communion with people that he breaks his own standards to get it? No, that's an interesting point, and I would obviously say no. He would never change his standards. And you know, and Nebuchadnezzar is telling this to the boys. They didn't say, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't really want to be burned alive, so we'll bow down and pretend to worship your God, but it'll just be pinkies crossed because it doesn't really mean anything, and we didn't really worship, but that's okay, okay? And he probably would have been happy because they, they obeyed him. And they weren't even really pleading for their lives at that point either. And, you know, would God have been proud of them? And here's another question. Would their names have even been remembered today? You know, can you or I remember any single man or woman that spends their Sunday at peewee football? Or, golfing. You know, or golfing or sitting in their jacuzzi watching the sermon they paid for in a DVD? I mean, good grief. Well, okay, let's, let's maybe go a little more personal on this. I think there's really something here. We are taught that all men have weaknesses. These weaknesses, it is said, were given to us from God for three basic reasons, really. First, to humble us, to make us teachable. And second, to cause us to need one another, because he doesn't give all of us the same gifts, so it kind of helps us need each other. And third, to lead us to Christ, because he has promised to change our weaknesses into strengths by his tutelage. Now, the great tragedy of the human condition is that we miss the purpose for which our weaknesses were given. We are weak. And by definition, we are weakest in our weaknesses at our weakest point. <laughs> That's a, a funny way to say it, but yes. Well, it's in the simplicity that I'm seeing such a trap in our modern world. For example, an alcoholic craves alcohol. That's where he's weak. A kleptomaniac craves what isn't hers. A gossiper longs for the dirty little secrets of other people's lives. An angry husband can't control his temper. The bossy wife must have everything her way. The list is as endless as humanity. No one enjoys conquering their weaknesses. We enjoy glorying in our strengths. And if our weaknesses are connected to something we want or something that gives us pleasure, we are quick to say the weakness isn't our fault. You hear that all the time. And it, it falls right in with also that other great fallacy, the it's not my fault, I'm born this way, the devil made me do it. That same phrase has been yes. spoken in a many, many different ways, but it all ties to what you're saying. This well, yes. The point is not whether God made you exactly the way you are or not. He's already told us that our purpose here on earth is to learn to choose good over evil and that he has given us weaknesses to make us strong. Satan has successfully repackaged this just as you're saying. If God made me this way, then there is no sin in being as he made me. The damnable mindset has led to so much sorrow. It's incredible. 
It cuts to the very heart of the matter. It forbids the sinner, and we're all sinners, to find the courage within to let God change us. The Lord, as always, said it short and best, I think, when he said, you have to lose yourself in me to find yourself. So let's go back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, standing in front of the greatest king of their age. Despite Nebuchadnezzar's tempered tantrum, they made it clear they would not worship his image and that they were not afraid to be thrown into the fiery furnace. They knew that God could save them. But even if God chose to let them die in a horrible death, they would still cling to him and obey his laws anyway. What would your life be like if you said, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction, and I pray, dear Lord, to take it away from me. But if not, I will still follow your commandments and be chaste even to the end of my life. Now that's that's a, a trial of the heart. I've said that the Lord often requires the heart of everyone. And regardless of what that trial may be, it always stings to the heart. And so that is a moment for these men. The desire to live, their love was put on the line and they surrendered it to God. And even things that are like chronic sicknesses, for example, which can be a physical weakness. What if your attitude was, Lord, take away my sickness so I can do more of your work on earth, but if not, help me to bear the burden anyway? to the end. This is what I hear in this. Father, let this cup pass from me, but if not, I will go forward with your will anyway. It's the same humble mentality. It's astounding. It's astounding. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had never heard such insolence. In his fury, he commanded the furnace to be stoked seven times hotter than usual. He's really, really mad. Then he ordered his strongest guards to bind these three Jews and throw them in the fire. Now, the Bible says the furnace was so hot that the man marching them towards it died from heat exposure as they were throwing them in. Knowing the fury of Nebuchadnezzar, they probably kept walking (laughs) towards it as they were feeling the heat. Unbelievable. if they had stopped and not done it, he would have thrown them in too. Well, even his guards were dying to, to follow his command. It's astounding. Well, okay. After some time passed, you know, Nebuchadnezzar calmed down. And he made his way to an observation place he had built. How narcissistic of him. (laughs) Astounding. He can watch the people he's birthed. Yes, and he could gaze in. I'm sure he had to wait until it was so hot. You know, I mean, yeah, anyway. So he could gaze in on the charred remains of those who had dared to disobey him and bask in his power. He had the power of life and death. He really did. Now there, and you know the story, to his utter amazement, he saw four men walking about in the fire. Now again, we have a narcissist here, okay? He double-checked with his guards, and this is what he said. Did I not throw three men into the fire? And the guards that survived, obviously. (laughs) It's just astounding. I think I would have said, wait a minute. There's four people. I counted properly. Please tell me you only threw the three I command. Incredible. We only threw in three, we swear. So again, he, he paused like a real narcissist. And he seemed more concerned again that there were four men in the fire when there should have been three. Because who was this person that he should have burned? Oh, my gosh. And you know, now, again, what's astounding about this is that you'd think you'd stop and say, they're alive and walking around. That should be the first (laughs) true question. How are they surviving a fire so hot that you can die before you even get near it? That's not as big a worry. There are four in there. And there should only be three men walking around magically in a fire. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, after he sort of, you know, snapped out of himself, and he probably never did, he brought the three out and he heard uh, their story and realized that the Son of Man, as he says it, Surely a God is in there with them. And of course, that's who we believe Jesus our Lord went in there and protected them. Well, he was so impressed that he ended up making a proclamation to all the world. And we have it. 
It says, Be it known to every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is none other God that can deliver after this sort. So Nebuchadnezzar does have some change of heart, and he learns from Daniel. He actually goes to Daniel, and he's so impressed with Daniel and loves him so much. He actually asks Daniel to be his heir. Okay, he wants him to take over the kingdom. He loved Daniel. He really did. And Daniel said no. Daniel did not want to be the king uh, or the heir to Babylon. He was a prince of Judah, but he was not interested in being head over Babylon. Now that is humility. Yes, Daniel was a humble man. His entire purpose was to protect and help his people in captivity. Now, the real message that you're, you're going to get from Daniel, and we will talk about this some more, is that God foretold these things because he wanted to prove to the world that he was in charge. His plan had been originally that Moses and the children of Israel were going to go back into the land of Abraham. They were going to establish a kingdom and they were going to be peaceful and happy and glorious. And to be the example of how to live as a people and how to worship to the rest of the world. Yes, and that's what they were chosen to do, that and to prepare for the Messiah. That's why they're called the chosen, and this is what they were chosen for. And it worked for a time, but when the house of Israel became so wicked that the people were actually starting to say, we don't need your God, he's really no better than ours. That's when the Lord started to tell the prophets, you've made my name to stink. And so with all the other false gods that were worshipped on the earth at the time, he was just now considered just another idol. He was. And a weaker sort of tribal god. Mm. So then what started happening amongst the people, because Lucifer never sleeps, when it all started to fall apart and Nebuchadnezzar takes over, the other nations were saying, oh, well, I guess our god Baal, Ra, all these different gods that they worshipped really are more powerful because, you know, Jehovah kind of gave up on the people. So he wanted to be very clear that wasn't true. And so what's actually coming next is really interesting when you understand that. He wanted the world to know through Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king on the planet, that he was still in charge. And he's going to say it again in a more powerful way. Coming from Nebuchadnezzar, the ancient world was actually a little smaller than we give it credit for. We really kind of, in the way we teach it today, and we think, okay, the Greeks never talked with the Chinese, with the never talked with the Romans and all that stuff. It's not true. They actually did interact. In fact, as soon as the Tower of Babel fell, and as soon as the languages were broken, academies were set up almost immediately where they would bring in different people and they were trying to put the languages together. And they had runners in there. They knew each other. And as we get the state archives coming out of the dirt, we're discovering that these kingdoms actually did interact quite a bit more than we are prepared to believe today. But, so having Nebuchadnezzar say, hey, guys, you know. And being in the center of the world, his decree would have easily reached every trade route. Every, it did. It did. Every, everyone that interacted with Babylon. It did. It said, you thought Israel fell because Jehovah is no good. The fact of the matter is, Jehovah pulled them down because they made his name stink, and he is a God of justice, and incidentally, I just had to deal with him, and he's still around. That's really what's going on here. So, Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed with all of the things that he had been learning, and Daniel had been teaching him. One night, he has a dream, and this is some years later, and in this dream, he sees this enormous tree and it's just astounding. And all these birds from all over come and live in the branches of the tree. And it spreads out and all these animals live under it. And it's kind of this big protective 
thing. And then all of a sudden, an angel comes down with an axe and cuts down the tree and just leaves the root of it. Nebuchadnezzar wakes up and he is in another panic. This time he just says, Daniel, get in here. I need to know what this means. Daniel heard the dream and just sat quietly for a moment. And Nebuchadnezzar said what? And Daniel said, I, I don't want to tell you about this. I don't want to talk about it. And Nebuchadnezzar finally says, I need to know. Don't worry. I'm not going to be upset. I love you. I need to know. And Daniel said, this dream is against you. He said, you are the great tree and your power reaches all over the earth and everybody is protected because of you. And when you make a decree, you have the power to protect. Nebuchadnezzar starts to have some Nebuchadnezzar style humility. Okay, okay. Okay. And he's doing pretty good. And he actually starts to be more charitable. He actually um, starts to give more food away. He's being a little nicer to people. He's really trying. And Daniel had encouraged him to do this. And Daniel had actually warned him that, you know, now that you have had a, uh, your own witness of God's power and you're starting to understand some of these things, you really ought to be more careful in your narcissism and in what you're doing because there is a God and he's watching over us here and he's watching over you and the whole world. Nebuchadnezzar did really well for a while. But in true narcissist fashion. Yes, yes. One day he was walking through the palace and he saw how beautiful it was. And we've seen even the ancients say it was really something. And he saw the hanging gardens and he saw his beautiful harem and he saw all his money and he saw his lion that, you know, walked where he said. And he actually owned a dragon, the scriptures say. Well, excuse me. He actually owned a dragon, the traditions say too, that basically, you know, would let him pat his head. And he was feeling pretty cocky. And so he stands out on one of the palace balconies and he lifts up his hands and he says, am I not Nebuchadnezzar the great who did all this stuff? Am I not the great me? You know, here we are back to the narcissism. He heard a voice that said, O king, this day the kingdom is taken from thee. And what happened is really, really, really interesting. Nebuchadnezzar lost his human mind. That is a fascinating part of the scriptures of an undisputed king that was left alone to eat pasture grass like yes. an animal. He became a beast. He lost all of his human sensibilities and he thought he was an ox. What's astounding about this story is that he was so powerful and so feared still that his wise men and his counselors took him and they, in a sense, put him in a pasture and let him eat grass. And they kept running the kingdom. Now, any other king that, like, went wacko, you'd think that someone would usurp the kingdom. You'd think the wise men would take over. You'd think the neighboring people would say, where is the wacko king? They would immediately aspire to his throne. Uh, but nobody did. That is weird. And what was the duration, the time he was being well, a dumb ox? Okay. The, the Bible says seven years. Correct. But, but, the tradition actually says something else happened, mm. and it's very interesting. And that Nebuchadnezzar actually had moments of clarity, and then he would slide back, which makes a lot of sense. If he were just a crazy beast for seven years, it doesn't, you know, how do you teach him? He would snap out of it. He would see himself naked in this pasture eating grass, and his fingernails were all big, and his hair was all matting at his beard, and he looked like this... Gosh, almost like a Sasquatch almost, you know, living out in the field all hairy and weird. And he would just be, what in the world? And he would, and, and he would just lament. And he would call for Daniel. 
and then it wouldn't be too long that it would come back on him. And this was going back and forth. So Daniel did go and see him one time. And Nebuchadnezzar begged him to go to God, begged him. Daniel said he would. What the tradition says is that the Lord actually heard Daniel and said, I will give you a month for a year because of your prayers. Mm. Now that actually makes sense. How do you run a kingdom like that for seven years? With a, a cow king. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But seven months actually could work. You could fake it for seven months and keep the kingdom together. And so Nebuchadnezzar would come in and out of this. Well, at the end of the seven months, and Daniel refused to go and see him because they said that, that when he would call for him, they'd go and tell him, he would just weep. He just, he couldn't. He, it wasn't he was trying to be cruel. He just totally devastated him to see this. And he would cry and cry. This was kind of his adopted father in some ways. They, they, they did love each other. And after seven months, the Lord healed Nebuchadnezzar. And he may be the only narcissist to ever be healed. To have actually been cured of narcissism. And this may be the only way to cure a narcissist. Because the, I'm telling you, the psychiatrists say it can't be done. And we know he was because Nebuchadnezzar actually wrote a chapter in the Bible. So he's not a prophet. Right, he's, he, he wasn't called of God to lead Israel. He was still given that honor to, yes. to write scripture. I suspect you'll find at the great day in the celestial kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, wow. He repented. He really did. And the Lord had to take him down to nothing, where it was literally, you only think about yourself, here you are. You are nothing. Thinking about yourself in a field, eating well, grass. Gosh, I mean, you know. And it is sort of funny, the fact um, uh, an ox is really a castrated bull. Mm. And well, I don't think they castrated Nebuchadnezzar like he had done other people. I think what the scriptures are trying to say by mentioning the ox is that he had lost all his power. Put him out to pasture, so to speak. So, you know, let's just take a little bit. The whole entire chapter four is nice, but let's just read a little piece of it. And at the end of the days, and I do believe that it was seven months, a month for a year, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes into heaven and my understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, nor say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. He got it. He got it. I would say the student of Daniel would notice the new choice of words. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer referring to the Most High as Daniel's God, or your God, but as the God, the Most High, him that liveth, and the King of heaven. In other words, he's saying, my God. Nebuchadnezzar's God is now the God of Israel. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Reed, for joining us. We will continue our study of Daniel in our next episode. We have to get into the I would say a lot of the meat of the book of Daniel. There are amazing visions and prophecies and astounding things in there that Sir Isaac Newton, I'm told, was attempting to unlock. 
And so we will attend to that next time. Thank you, everyone that has feasted with us. Remember, stay hungry. The gospel will satisfy you. As always, these are our views. These are our studies. We invite you to join with us. They're not a part of any denomination or haven't been reviewed by anyone. If you come to the Lord with a humble heart, as we have learned, he will give you answers directly. Thank you, and until next time. Thank you.